Hi, and welcome back to Brain and Vat. We've got a very special guest today, um, Kenny Pierce. Kenny Pierce is an assistant professor in Berkeley Studies at uh, the Trinity College Dublin, and uh, he's visiting the US at the moment where he's stuck during lockdown. Um, and we're very glad to have him on the show today. He's going to be talking to us about the simulation argument, and he's got a great thought experiment for us. So, Kenny, please take it away. Thank you. Um, so, start by thinking about how uh, scientifically informed common sense considers visual perception. So you might think that uh, there's this real physical computer outside my mind, and the real physical computer is giving off photons that interact with my eye in certain ways, sends a signal up my optic nerve uh, to my brain, and then I have this nice uh, visual perception of the uh, YouTube channel or whatever. If that's how the whole thing works, then it's possible to intervene in that causal chain at a later point. So instead of the signal really coming from my eye, it's possible that something else is starting a signal on my optic nerve and I would never know the difference. And this is precisely what happens in the film, The Matrix, right? The people are actually floating in vats of fluid and uh, the, there's a computer that is causing all of their perceptions by interacting with their nerves. Well, we can take that a step further because if those people are just floating in vats and there's a computer causing all of their uh, perceptions, they don't actually need any sentience and they don't need any bodies. And so we can imagine that they were just, in fact, brains in vats and that there's nothing but the brain that is hooked up to the computer and that's receiving this false input. We may even be able to take this scenario another level farther. There's a debate about whether it's possible for a, a sufficiently complex computer program to attain consciousness. If that is possible, then you don't even need the brains. It could be that the people themselves are all part of the computer simulation and there is no, uh, no body at all. That hypothesis um, is associated with uh, Nick Bostrom. Um, there's a further step that you might be able to take. In the computer simulation hypothesis, there's still a physical world in which the computer exists. But some philosophers think that it is at least possible and maybe actual uh, that minds are not physical. So if minds are non-physical things, then we can imagine that there isn't even a brain. And this was the hypothesis imagined by Descartes, who thought that uh, you know, we should consider this case Perhaps I am just a disembodied soul floating out there, and perhaps my perceptions are caused by some other disembodied soul, a deceiving demon, who plants in my mind all of these false ideas of a physical world that doesn't exist at all. So on this Cartesian demon hypothesis, there wouldn't even be a physical world of any kind, because uh, you don't need the computer to run, as it were, the simulation. Um, now, why do philosophers think about these kinds of hypotheses? Well, the most common reason, and the reason starting from Descartes, is that philosophers think of them as skeptical hypotheses that are going to be important for trying to examine our concept of knowledge. We ordinarily think that we know that I have two hands, but I just came up with a sort of list of scenarios that I can't disprove that are scenarios in which I would not have two hands. So this creates a sort of puzzle in the theory of knowledge. But there also have been people who, and are people today, 
who thought that something kind of like these simulation hypotheses was the actual truth about the world. Thirdly, uh, kind of the place where these things connect most with my own philosophical interests is in the question of what these hypotheses might say about the concept of reality. What would it take for a world to be real? And if it turned out we were in some kind of simulation, would that imply that there is not really a desk in front of me? Well, Kenny, thank you very much for that. Um, I suppose the first question we've got to think about is, you know, you've, you've given us a range of different ways in which we could be deluded about what's actually going on. So from the sort of matrix view where you do actually have a physical body, it's just located elsewhere, um, to that ultra skeptical view, as you say, you are just a geist, you know, floating around in some netherworld um, who thinks that you're, you're in some sort of physical reality. Now, would there be any way in which we could adjudicate between these different possibilities? Well, one thing that we could consider is philosophical arguments about what it takes to produce consciousness, right? So we know that I'm aware of my surroundings, or I know that at least about myself. I have this kind of awareness of my surroundings and, and thought. And you might think that not all of these hypotheses are consistent with that. So some people have argued that a kind of biological substrate of some sort is needed to produce genuine consciousness and that a computer couldn't do it. Or some people have argued that, um, you know, non-physical souls are impossible. Other people have, have argued that non-physical souls are required for thought. So that's one way that we could um, adjudicate between these. Uh, another thing that's been discussed that is maybe a little bit trickier and more controversial is whether, uh, whether there are limits to the precision that certain kinds of simulations could have. So some people have floated the idea that the fact that you know, physics tells us that particles don't have perfectly precise locations. Well, why would that be? Maybe you can't simulate with perfect precision. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, that idea is a little bit out there in, in my view. But uh, these are the sorts of things that people have tried to appeal to that might uh, suggest one way or another. So that's well, so, the glitch in the matrix argument, right? In other words, you know, you have, you know, the, uh, the duplicate cats or, you know, things that sort of just show mm -hmm. that, well, maybe this isn't all adding up. And so the system itself can give you evidence of its falsity would be the idea, right? So if the particles aren't, you know, lining up probably maybe, be, um, you know, the, the computer simulation, you know, needs its software updated um, or the, the programmer was too cheap to buy the latest version. Yeah, one would, would have to wonder whether, there, whether we can come up with any things like that um, that couldn't also have an explanation in terms of a real physical world or that are better explained as kind of programming glitches rather than just as physics being weird. Because um, presumably the, the program, the underlying program, would have to have some kind of consistency to it um, as well if the computer's going to know what to do next. Right. So, I mean, it's interesting because the glitches could point in either direction. Um, you might say, well, reality is the kind of thing that doesn't have glitches. Um, computer programs do have glitches, and so computer programs won't represent reality properly but it could go the other way um you know you could say that um 
uh, reality has glitches, right? So, you know, like these weird quantum quantum uh, mechanics um, and COVID-19 popping out of nowhere. And, you know, so we, we, get, we get weird stuff happening. I mean, it's not that weird compared with quantum mechanics, but, but anyway, you know, we get weird stuff happening. Um, and that's exactly what we would see in a computer program. And so we're in a computer program. I mean, it's not a conclusive argument, but it's consistent. So it seems like glitches could, could be used on both sides. Right. Well, and another thing that we have to consider is that a lot of these hypotheses are often assuming that the, we're in a simulation in a computer like the computers we build in a world like the world we inhabit. Right. But of course, you could suppose, and, and you would suppose if you're thinking that our physics is somehow revealing that we're in a simulation, if you think that then you're going to have to think that the world outside the simulation has very different physics from ours. And if so, then why would you think that the computer our simulation is running on is like our computers? And then it becomes kind of hard to understand what the hypothesis is saying or what kind of predictions it might have. Uh, so there's an alternative version of the theory. This is the version that uh, Nick Bostrom gives. Um, he suggests that uh, if you Think about us and the kinds of science experiments that we do and the way that we use computers. It seems very likely that if humans last long enough, then eventually we will use very sophisticated computers to run very sophisticated simulations of our evolutionary origins. And probably we would run lots and lots of them. And that means that there would be a lot more simulated humans than real humans, which is a reason for thinking that we might be the simulated humans and not the real ones. Um, if you're thinking about something like that, that's a hypothesis that is kind of explicitly giving a reason why the uh, world outside the simulation would be the world inside the simulation. So it seems like you've got this probabilistic account, right? But you've got to posit a few odd things. So you've got to say, well, we should assume that humanity could reach a level where it would be able to create simulations that are as real as reality, um, that they are indistinguishable from that, and that they would run, you know, um, these simulations, uh, you know, ad finitum. Um, and therefore, because of that, there's a good likelihood that we're in one. Um, right. Now, I suppose the question is, how would we differentiate that sort of probabilistic account from other probabilistic accounts about the nature of reality? So, you know, there are other views about, you know, what are the chances that there are uh, uh, alien life forms out there? Well, we say, well, you know, what are the chances that there's a planet like Earth, which could sustain life like ours? Well, there's X many planets and X many, you know, solar systems, mm -hmm. and we extrapolate out. And then we sort of say, well, we think there could be uh, 20 planets in our known universe that are like ours, and therefore there are this many you know, other alien beings out there. But we have no direct evidence of it. We're sort of just, you know, extrapolating based on some sort of probabilistic account. Right. So the uh, right. So Bostrom's simulation argument uh, it relies on something called the indifference principle, which is a principle that says that um, if there are x possibilities that we can't distinguish between observationally, then the probability that we're in any given one of them is one over x. Right. So. If you can't distinguish, you know, there are a thousand possible lottery tickets. One of them is the winning lottery ticket. 
your observation doesn't enable you to tell winning winners from losers because the drawing hasn't taken place yet. And so you should think that the odds that the one you're holding is a winner is one in a thousand. That sounds good. Uh, and so Bostrom is using that in the simulation argument when he's saying, unless civilizations generally destroy themselves before they get to that level of technology, or post-humans for some reason aren't interested in simulating their evolutionary origins. And unless one of those things is true, there are a lot more simulated people than real people. But uh, here's a weird thing that follows from the indifference principle in these simulation cases. This is a case uh, due to Adam Elga. He says, uh, suppose uh, Dr. Evil is in his uh, impenetrable moon base, threatening to destroy the universe or the, the or planet Earth. And we can't attack his moon base directly. He'll be able to trigger his device beforehand. So what we do is we create 999 simulations of Dr. Evil in his moon base. And we inform the real Dr. Evil and the 999 simulations that unless he disarms his weapon, we'll pull the plug. So now the real Dr. Evil should believe that there's a 99.9% .9 chance that if he doesn't disarm his weapon, he will die. Um, it seems like there's something wrong with this, um, but it's, it's hard to say what, right? And whatever's wrong with it is something about the, the simulation, uh, something about simulations and the indifference principle. Um, and there are similar problems kind of about uh, anthropic reasoning and fine-tuning arguments in, in physics and so forth, where we're trying to say, uh, you know, there are this many outcomes that are, or parameters for the universe that are consistent with the existence of observers, so probably we're in kind of an undistinguished one or something like this. There are a lot of probabilistic puzzles about how we do this kind of reasoning. Uh, so if you don't think Elga's Dr. Evil case sounds like Dr. Evil is being rational in disarming his weapon, um, then, then there are, is some problem somewhere with the, uh, with the indifference principle. So I wonder whether, whether the problem that, that the Dr. Evil case captures is that there's this kind of uh, this uncomfortable um, conflation of metaphysics and epistemology, right? So epistemology is, is the field of philosophy that concerns knowledge, right? So how do we know that we're in the real world? Um, I, I don't need to explain this to Kenny. This is really for the listeners. <laughs> this is metaphysics is, you know, what is the nature of that world, that real world? So, so you know, how do we know we're in the real world, world versus what is the real world? So in the, in, in the Dr. Evil case, and in, in the case of the indifference principle, I wonder whether the question of, um, is it dis are these different simulations distinguishable from the real world and from each other is one question. It's a knowledge question. The second question is, what is the probability in reality? What is, what is the actual probability of being in one of those, the actual world or the simulation? And it could be that they're indistinguishable, so they seem to have, seem to have an equal probability, but in reality, there's a different probability associated with which world you're in. Um, I was, I'm interested in how you would cash out this distinction between epistemology and, and metaphysics in these kinds of cases. Right. Um, so one thing you might say is that actually simulated people aren't conscious, but we don't know that. 
right? So it's so it's possible. I, I mean, it seems quite plausible to me that we don't know whether simulated, at least for sure, whether simulated people could be conscious. Uh, and if that's right, then the sort of number of indistinguishable scenarios um, we don't we don't know how many scenarios are indistinguishable, right? Because we don't know what range of observations is possible. Um, another thing people often talk about with uh, when they talk about objective probabilities, they're often thinking about indeterministic causation and what could follow on from here. Um, but of course, there was never any possibility that the real Dr. Evil would become a simulated Dr. Evil. That's not built into the case. And so the objective probability of him dying when they pull the plug on the simulation is zero. That's not a way you can actually kill the real Dr. Evil. But there's uh, the issue that in the scenario, um, if he thinks that uh, the simulated people are conscious, then he has no way of knowing that he's not one of the simulated people and therefore can't be killed by pulling the plug. And so the, the subjective probability, the probability from his perspective, uh, if the indifference principle is a good principle of reasoning, it's going to be quite high uh, that he can be killed by pulling the plug. I didn't get that from the original thought experiment, but now I understand it. So you're saying that that the question is, will the pulling of the club of the plug kill Doctor Evil as well? You know, in other words, uh, is it, me interacting with Doctor Evil am I am I also the simu simulated me, or am I the real me? Is that part of the question? Well, the the question in the in the Doctor Evil scenario is, um, is it rational for the real Doctor Evil? to think that there is a high probability that he will be killed if he doesn't disarm his weapon, right? right. And there's a high probability of, from his subjective perspective, is there a high probability? Should he be worried about that, right? And if the indifference principle is a good principle of reasoning and the simulated case is indistinguishable for him subjectively from the real case, then from those two premises, it follows that he should think there's a high probability that he'll die if he doesn't disarm his weapon. But if one of those things fails, if the indifference principle is wrong, or if he can distinguish between simulation and reality and knows that he can, right, then the argument would fail. Um, but that would require him, for instance, to know that the simulated people aren't conscious or something like that. I mean, it's interesting because it seems like, you know, when we have the real Dr. Evil and the real world, and we have this discussion and we say to Dr. Evil, well, we're going to create um, a whole bunch of simulations. Um, at, at that juncture, does it make it harder for the real Dr. Evil to differentiate, you know, his, his realness? He says, well, you know, I can peer into these other worlds and I can't tell the difference between me and them. They seem really like other iterations of me so much so that I'm not even sure if I'm the real one. All of these Dr. Evil saying, but I'm the real one. They're all putting their hands up and saying, please don't pull the plug. I'm the real one, you know, and I'm issuing real threats. Um, but as you say, the, the creation of, of the simulation, um, if there is only one genuine state of affairs, should play no role whatsoever in the real Dr. Evil's reasoning. Because he says, well, they're all added after the fact, after I issued my threat. Um, so go ahead and pull the plug. I will still be here. The other 999 guys, well, they're going to disappear and their threats will disappear, but my threat won't disappear. And so that seems to be why the, the thought experiment has some force because it shows 
merely positing these additional realities, um, you know, doesn't seem to solve the problem in the way that you'd like. Right, right. Well, but right. But the difficult thing is that all those simulated Dr. Evils are having the same thought process, right? And, and that's the thing, and they're all wrong. Um, so one thing you could do here is you could endorse what's called an externalist epistemology. So according to an externalist epistemology, uh, the difference between knowing and not knowing, or having a justified or warranted belief and an unjustified or unwarranted belief, is not uh, internal to the subject. It's not just about what's in their head. And so on an externalist epistemology, you could say the real Dr. Evil knows that he is the real Dr. Evil and that he's in the real world because his beliefs, uh, his belief forming processes are connected with the real world causally in the right way. And therefore he knows. Those simulated Dr. Evils, they're not connected in the right way. And so they believe that they're in the real world, but they're wrong. Um, and they're uh, perhaps unjustified or unwarranted in their beliefs as well, uh, because their beliefs aren't formed by interaction with the real world. So if you take that externalist line, then you might think the, the real Dr. Evil knows that he's the real Dr. Evil, and therefore is right to uh, kind of reject the application of the indifference principle here. So then, so then there's an interesting question, which is what are those people in the simulation, those faux people in the simulation, what do their thoughts refer to? So if they're not referring to the real world, what are they referring to? So I'm sitting, assume for a moment, I'm not in the simulation, right? So assume for a moment, I'm sitting at a real table and I think the word table, I think it about this table. My thought refers to this table. Now there's a simulator, Jason, right? And he's sitting in a simulation. He's sitting at what he takes to be a table and he thinks about that simulated table. What does the word table in his thought refer to? Mine refers to this table, but what does his thought refer to? And if it does refer to something, then in what way is his thought not true or veridical or real? Right. So this is, this is one of my favorite bits about the uh, brain of that hypothesis. So this is from a, a classic discussion of the hypothesis by Hilary Putnam, uh, which connects not specifically to epistemic externalism that we were just talking about, but semantic externalism. So just like the, the epistemic externalism says the difference between knowing and not knowing is not internal to the person, to the knower, it's external. The semantic externalist says that the meanings of your thoughts depend on the external world. As Putnam famously put it, meanings just int in the head. Um, and if you think that, then Putnam argues, there's a sense in which the hypothesis that we are brains and vats is incoherent. And here's the reason why. Suppose first that we are not in a vat, but some other people are. So, in our world, we go visit some science lab and we see this brain in a vat and we you know, watch on the screen what the brain is seeing in the simulation, right? Um, but suppose that brain has always been in the vat. Suppose it was, never a, it was never a human outside in our world. It was always you know, grown in a, a Petri dish and, and lives in this vat uh, and has always been in the simulation. Well, when I learned words like tree and also words like brain and vat, 
there were people pointing to things in the world. They're pointing to a tree out there and saying tree. And that's how I learned that word and it got its meaning. It means the kind of thing that those people pointed to. But the brain in the vat has never been in the presence of a person pointing to a real tree. Every time somebody said the word tree and pointed, they were pointing to a simulated tree, right? Which is an element in a computer program. And so the brain, as one way Putnam puts it, is that that brain does not speak English, right? It speaks vat English. And in vat English, the word tree sounds the same as our word tree is not actually the same. It doesn't have the same meaning. It means what we call simulated tree, right? And so the brain that's always been in the vat doesn't even have the capacity to talk about real physical trees. And so it doesn't have or think about them. And so it doesn't have this worry, it's, or it's mistaken if it has this worry, oh, maybe this is a simulated tree and not a real tree. Because when it thinks about a simulated tree, it's thinking about what we would call a simulated simulated tree. That is, if there was another computer simulation inside the vat. So, so we, if we think, uh, if we think, oh, maybe I've always been a brain in a vat. I'm using the concepts of brain and vat that are based on people pointing to things in the world I inhabit. And so, I'm imagining that I might be in a simulation embedded in the world that I inhabit, right? But the sense that the whole world I inhabit might just be the simulation uh, is, according to Putnam, not actually a hypothesis I can make sense of. So is it good enough? In other words, if you're, if you're the simulation, right, and you're looking at that tree, the simulated tree, and you think the word tree, and it refers to what we call simulated tree, but what you just call a tree, um, is that good enough? In other words, is that person in the simulation missing out on some crucial aspect of reality? Or is that just what reality is to think about the things that exist within your frame of reference? Right. Uh, so that person the, in the simulation uh, clearly doesn't have any concept, if Putnam is right about how language works, doesn't have any concept of what the so-called real tree, according to us, would be. And their whole life and all of their plans and everything that is good or bad for that person uh, is inside the simulation. And so you might ask, uh, why should that person care, right? Well, we um, inhabit perhaps a more fundamental reality than the invaded brain, right? Uh, the simulation depends for its existence on what's going on in our reality. Uh, is that a reason for worry? Um, perhaps not. Uh, you know, these things maybe are, according to some kind of metaphysical pictures, reality has a, a tiered structure. There's a kind of hierarchy of reality. Um, but the, the tables and chairs we experience, even according to, again, scientifically informed common sense, are not at the root of that structure, right? Um, at the root of that structure are maybe things like, you know, quantum fields or space-time or something, um, which gives rise to the ordinary objects we experience. And so the ordinary objects of our experience are not at the, the metaphysical root of things. Uh, and the same is true for that, uh, that brain in a vat. They're experiencing ordinary objects like uh, simulated tables and simulated trees and so forth. 
but those things aren't at the, the metaphysical root of things. And we wouldn't really worry too much about that, right? So, you know, if scientists tomorrow come up with a bizarre scientific um, uh, discovery about the nature of quantum particles, we would still get up in the morning, still brush our teeth with this toothpaste that is now made of stuff that we didn't think it was made of before, but we would still live our lives um, very much the same way. And it wouldn't matter to us too much unless you were a physicist or very interested in physics. Um, might the same not be true of the person in the simulation? You know, even if they find out perhaps that they're living in a simulation, it may, they'd say, okay, well, fine, you know, but it's no different from the quantum particles that my toothbrush is made of. It doesn't change my daily life. I'm still going to get up and earn a living and, and, and do philosophy podcasts. Right. So there's a, a, an article by uh, David Chalmers. Uh, you can find it on his website. It's also in the book, um, Science Fiction and Philosophy, edited by Susan Schneider called The Matrix as Metaphysics. Um, and if I recall correctly, this article was actually commissioned as part of the publicity for the film. Um, but he makes precisely this argument that the correct way of thinking about being in the matrix is that it's a surprising discovery about the nature of ordinary objects. It would be a mistake to say that, oh, we've discovered that really there are no trees because in the, you know, in the movie, the oh, outside the matrix, all the trees have been destroyed, right? Um, but it would be a mistake to say we've discovered that there are really no trees because what we meant by tree all along were the things that we experience in the, the simulation, the things you see if you go to the you know, simulated Central Park or whatever. Um, and this is no difference, different than, for instance, um, you know, you sometimes when you, you learn about physics, people say things like, oh, the table is actually mostly empty space. Uh, because the, the particles are so tiny and far apart. Well, that's a surprising discovery about the nature of tables, but it doesn't show that there are no tables. That's a, a kind of misinterpretation of its significance. So let me draw this distinction. So if we think about things that we know to be delusions, like uh, a dream that you have that you wake up from, um, or if you took some very uh, strong LSD and it sort of you know, made you experience a reality that you later realized was not real. Um, how would that be different from what we've described thus far? Yeah, uh, something I think that uh, Chalmers actually misses in that essay that I think is quite important is, of course, in the movie, it is possible to get out of the matrix. And the fact that there's this possible path the kind of getting out into another world and experiencing the deeper reality that uh, that your reality is kind of based on or derivative from, that seems like it uh, it makes a difference, and it makes being in the matrix a lot more like dreaming, where part of the thing that makes us say that uh, a dream are not real is that you have the experience of waking up from them, and when you wake up from them, and you're trying to make sense of your world the kind of most effective way to give coherent sense to the totality of your experience is to kind of bracket or dismiss the dream experiences, right? And say, those aren't part of, uh, as it were, real life. I don't treat those, I don't expect people to remember conversations that I had with them while I was dreaming, for instance. And so I don't treat them the same practically as I do the real experiences. And so the possibility of uh, the possibility of waking up from the dream seems quite significant to our assessment of its its unreality. We say. 
So do you think that you could owe uh, moral obligations to simulated beings? Or do you think you could do something immoral in a simulated world? So let's say in your dream, uh, you are in a lucid state. So you know you're in a dream and you decide to go on a mass murder spree in the dream. Um, you know, of the view that, well, all these things are just figments of my imagination. And so I'm going to relish uh, ripping out their throats and, you know, stabbing them in the kidney. Um, and, or, or, you know, let's say you, yeah, would you have been doing anything wrong there? And similarly in a matrix world, if you are Neo and you know that this is, you know, all a fabrication, are you doing anything wrong when you harm the beings in that world? Well, it seems to me to matter a lot uh, whether they're the simulated people are real people. So we would ordinarily suppose when we're dreaming that these people are figments of our imagination, that they're not any different than say fictional people or a, a child's imaginary friend or things like that. Um, you might still think there are moral concerns about how you behave toward them. That is, you might think that uh, wanting or desiring to pretend to do certain things to imaginary people is reflective on your moral character in some way, right? But if those aren't people, if they don't actually have kind of conscious experience, if they don't make decisions in the way that we do and so forth, um, then you're not wronging anybody, right? You're not doing wrong things to people. Maybe, you're, maybe it reflects badly on your moral character, but you're not harming anyone. Uh, but of course, according to the, the Matrix, all the almost all the simulated people are, um, are real people, right? In uh, actual humans in those, those facts. And so they're real people having real experiences who we're interacting with. The matrix suggests that even the, the agents and so forth who are um, purely simulated, who don't have a physical body, they seem to have uh, consciousness and to kind of make their own decisions, have some moral agency as well. And so it seems there, that, that in that scenario, uh, you are interacting with, uh, with real people who can be conceived as having moral rights. Um, not only does this mean that you can wrong them, but it also, of course, means that you can have meaningful and morally significant relationships with them. And this is another reason for thinking that in that kind of scenario, uh, as it were, the world of the, of the matrix is not a world kind of devoid of meaning, um, you know, any more than any more than as we're all under uh, lockdown here and interacting with one another virtually all over the world, um, we still know that we're interacting with real human persons and that the way we treat them matters. So I'm very curious um, how you would, uh, what your take would be on another thought experiment that we have discussed um, in this podcast before um, with a friend of ours named Aaron Fasser. So the thought experiment is Nozick's um, experience machine. So Nozick's experience machine, basically Nozick says, imagine one day I'm gonna present you with this machine, you can plug in. And if you plug in, you'll have the most wonderful experiences, um, all, all the wonderful experiences you can imagine, and you'll forget that you're in the machine, okay? Um, will you plug in for the rest of your life? And Nozick thinks that most of us will say no. Um, and the reason why he thinks is because the experiences that you have in the machine in some very important sense won't be real. They won't be authentic. And so your achievements and, and such that you, that you, that you um, 
you know, the things that you do, your successes in the machine won't be authentic. And he thinks that you won't be forming real relationships with other people in the machine. To do all these things, you need to do it in the real world. So now if we collapse the distinction between the simulation and the real world in, in important ways, um, especially in ways that you were discussing now, where you talk about meaningful interactions within the simulation, do you think Nozick's argument kind of drops away? Well, I think there's an, there's an assumption that's being made there, uh, which might be a necessary assumption in order for the experience machine to be sufficiently utopian. So about, I think about 20 years before Nozick, there's a story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Lion of Komar, where a guy, basically it turns out there is this secret thing hiding in the forest that people who find it can plug into the experience machine. And oh, really? the characters, yeah. And the character, the main character of the story is deciding whether to forcibly disconnect people. Oh, wow. um, who have decided to connect themselves to this thing. But, but something that's, that's emphasized here, you know, the, the machine in Clark, it's like scanning your brain and figuring out what kind of life will make you truly happy. And for almost everybody, it's imagining that it's simulating the perfect spouse for you. <laughs> right? Um, right. And, and um, it's, it's important here that that's not a real person. Because if it was a real person, the machine would never be able to ensure that that person acted in a way that always had, um, that always meant kind of your perfect happiness um, at, you know, which wouldn't be compatible presumably with her or his perfect happiness all the time. Um, that's not how human beings work. And so um, it's, and even if you don't think that, that that is quite what you need to be perfectly happy, nevertheless, it seems like for humans, we need certain kinds of relationships with others uh, in order to be genuinely happy, or at least to believe that we do, that we have these relationships. Uh, and that means that there's kind of an interaction and a give and take that um, you know, kind of eliminates the sort of perfection that is imagined by the, uh, by the experience machine scenario. It's a very clever answer. So it's interesting the way that we phrase the the experience machine because on the one hand uh you have the the kind of um open your eyes case where we say listen you've been living a delusion and all of the friends that you've made all of the projects that you're involved in none of them are real um and we shake you and sort of say would you like to exit you know the delusion and embrace reality which might be a lot less rosy, right? Like, like in the matrix, you know, there's no nice steak. There's just the gruel, you know, um, and everyone's in these sort of, you know, goopy things and they don't look nearly as glamorous as they do in, in the false reality. And so there's this question as to what we value, you know, do we value um, authenticity and reality or do we value the experience of things, even if um, those experiences don't track some other world? Right. Well, and, and this gets into kind of the, the place where this connects with my main research focus. So I, I study the, the early 18th century philosopher George Berkeley. Um, and Berkeley thought that he looked at, at Descartes' demon experiment that we uh, mentioned at the beginning, just immaterial minds and, and there's some other powerful mind that causes all of our experiences. And he was a person who looked at that and said, that's the way the world actually is, right? Uh, Descartes said, suppose your experiences are caused by a, a malicious intelligence who wants you to have false beliefs. And Barclay said, no, 
your experiences are caused by a benevolent God. Um, and, and Descartes is saying, that, well, that can't be right, because then God would be deceiving us into thinking there are trees when there are no trees. Um, and and Barclay's answer to that is, well, what, what do you mean by tree, right? Uh, Descartes and Locke and so forth, they think, well, there's the kind of the greenness and the shape and so forth. And then there's this other thing, the tree itself, the real tree that stands behind those qualities and supports them and exists outside my mind. Um, and, and Barclay thinks that that doesn't even make any sense, right? To think that there's this real mind independent tree standing behind the perceived qualities. And so um, this uh, is a, a nice quote on this. His opponents are insisting, you know, that we need these real things that exist outside the mind. And Barclay says, a piece of sensible bread, for instance, would stay my stomach better than 10,000 times as much of that insensible, unintelligible, real bread you speak of. <laughs> right? And, and, so, and so his idea is that the things that are worth caring about are the things that we can see and feel and eat. Um, if I can see the chair and I can touch it and I can sit in it, uh, what more do you want in order to say that it's a real chair? And he actually argues that although some people say they want more than that, every attempt to spell out what the more would be lands in some kinds of, of incoherence or unintelligibility. Uh, and so we should just focus on the things that we, that we actually perceive, and those are the things worth caring about. So I've got a, a comment and a question. Okay, so, so the comment is, Barclay, if he was faced with, with, um, with the simulation argument, would say something like this. He'd say, you know, the simulation argument goes, well, you're in a simulation, and so you're not in the real world. Um, and Barclay would say, okay, I can accept that we may be in a simulation, but that doesn't mean we're not in the real world. Because really what reality is, is just the kind of thing that we take to be real, right? Um, okay, so that's the comment, and you must just correct me if I've got that wrong. And, and, the, and the question um, has just escaped. Oh, yes, the question is this. The question is, part of the account that you've developed here is, as you said, an externalist account of content. So the idea is that the, I just want to see if I've got this correct, the meaning of our terms is determined by the things that causally impact them, as well as the reference of our terms. In other words, what our terms refer to is, is, um, is determined by what they were initially caused by. Whereas you might instead, um, contrary to Putnam, take an internalist account of content and say, no, our concepts have certain meaning in the head, right? So I know what things mean. And then if I look at the world around me, if I just so happen to be in a simulated world, the meaning of those concepts in my head won't be matched correctly by the world around me. And so I'll be wrong about everything, right? I'll be deluded. So the, the content of, the, of the, the concept tree, if I'm an internalist, is the kind of thing that really exists in the world and is a concrete object and isn't simulated. And so when I do look at the tree, it, the simulated tree, it's not matching up with my content sufficiently for my, for my concept to refer to that tree. And so I'm going to be wrong all the time. Well, we've been, so we've been talking about different responses given by different philosophers. And so we need to, to distinguish them because they don't all fit together. 
So Putnam, yeah, gives the externalist response. And it follows from uh, Putnam's response that the, uh, that I can still kind of be speaking truly when I speak of the tree and whatever, even if I'm in the simulation. Barclay is giving a different response because Barclay is an internalist about content. But because he's an internalist about content, he thinks that our thought can't actually reach out and make contact with those alleged real mind independent things that are supposed to stand behind our perception. So when Locke and Descartes are saying, well, there's our perception of the tree, and then there's this other thing, the real tree, Barclay's saying only the perception is in your head, right? So how could you reach out into the world to that real thing behind the perception? You don't even have the capacity to think about that alleged thing in a coherent way. There's, of course, a third view, somebody like in the history of philosophy, maybe Thomas Reed, uh, in the uh, late 18th century, responding to Barclay, who would think that uh, our concepts have to be distinguished from our sensations. So you've got the kind of sensory experience of what it's like to see the tree, and then you've got this other thing, the concept tree. And Reed thinks that we are just hardwired in such a way that when we have that sensory experience, then we have the concept. And it's just built into the concept that it's about mind-independent external things. Um, and he thinks, you know, you can't really explain uh, where these concepts come from. We have to think that they're kind of innate and hardwired or how we get them or anything. But just if you pay attention to what's going on in your mind, you'll see that it's like that. Um, and and Barclay's going to respond, pay attention and you'll see that the story you're telling doesn't even make sense. Um, but, but we do tend to think that way. We tend to think that our thoughts are uh, picking out those, um, those external objects that exist independent of our perception of them. So let me put this to you. So if we, if we all operate under the same delusion, in other words, if we all have sort of internal mental thing going on and that creates the same uh, sense of an external reality, but we're all operating under the same delusion, that's one thing. But if we have, let's say, all of us bar, bar one who are matching reality, and you've got the deluded person who has a perception of the way things are, which does not match reality. We would think the person who has certain mental states is not creating a reality because they happen to believe things to be a certain way or they conceive of things in a certain way doesn't make it so. And we're able to observe that um, because the rest of us are connected to that reality. Yeah. So the way we're going to think about this in, uh, say, Barclay world, is in terms of the regularities that exist in our perception. So we don't have voluntary control over our sensory experience. We have voluntary control to some extent over our imagination, say, um, or over our thought processes, but not over our sensory experience. And there are certain observed regularities in that that um, kind of fit together. And so there's a question about the extent to which we're making sense of those regularities. Um, it will follow from Barclay's uh, picture that it's possible in a metaphysical way that there could be totally different regularities for different perceivers, right? 
Barclay thinks that there is good reason from the regularity of our experience to suppose that it's all caused by one mind who is acting in a kind of consistent way according to consistent rules. This is the mind Barclay calls God. Um, but, you know, this is kind of a complicated late feature of his argument. He first argues the only type of causation we can make sense of is the causation we experience when we call up images in the imagination. And so if there's any, exp any um, explanation of my sensory experience, it has to be an explanation like that. There's got to be some other mind that has a power that is like my power of imagination, only it's a power of setting up those ideas in other minds, namely me. That's the only hypothesis Barclay says that's intelligible. And then we have this very long course of argument, course of examination of what our experience is like, that leads us to the conclusion that probably there's one mind causing all of the sensory experience, and probably there are other minds like me who are receivers of that experience, and probably it all kind of fits coherently together as, as one world, as it were. Um, but this all involves uh, quite a lot of, of complex stages of argument um, after Barclay comes to his very surprising conclusion that there are no mind-independent objects and all of my perceptions are caused by God in the course of just a few pages. Um, so I'm curious, I'm curious whether Barclay's this is a form of idealism, right? So um, just to distinguish between realism and idealism, again, just correct me if I've got this wrong. Um, so realism is the view that objects can exist independently of a mind. Um, the physical world can, can exist independently of a mind. And idealism is the view that that's false, that in order for objects to exist, there must be some mind that conceptualizes them in some way. Um, so assuming that Barclay is an idealist, right? Um, I wonder whether he doesn't have a problem, a, a regress problem. So, um, what is it? What is what is a table in in Barclay's view? Well, a table is the kind of thing that um, is conceptualized as a table. So, um, but then, but then, what is the concept of the table within the concept of the table? Well, it's the kind of thing that is conceptualized as a table. So, it seems like we have this infinite regress of concepts within concepts within concepts because you've got to have a concept of a table which is itself is a concept of a table which itself is a concept of a table infinitely so i just i, I wondered how barkey might escape the regress problem if there is a regress problem right so there's a famous objection to a view that's sometimes called analytic phenomenalism uh, an objection due to quine so analytic phenomenalism which was at least inspired by Barclay. It's perhaps not the best interpretation of Barclay's text. Um, but this is a view that when I say there's a table, the meaning of my assertion is a bunch of conditional claims about perception. So we're thinking about like, if I walk five paces and turn around and look again, then I'll have a certain kind of perception. And I can imagine what that perception would be like uh, and similarly, if I look under the table, I'll have a certain kind of perception that I can imagine and so forth. And so all of those if claims about if perceivers were so situated, then they would have. Um, one of the objections that, that Quine gives is that we are unable to specify those conditionals without using the concept of table. 
and those conditionals claim to be an analysis of the concept table. And so according to Quine, um, we can't kind of use this to get rid of the concept table and to analyze it in terms of something simpler because we're unable to specify it in terms of the kind of pure sensory experience. And, and this gets to difficulty of um, disinterpreting our experience. So, you know, the way we experience the world, we don't experience patches of color. We experience tables and chairs and trees. And it kind of, at the level of consciousness at least, it's kind of already interpreted. Um, if you learn to paint or draw in perspective, you learn some skills at disinterpreting and you find things like um, this, you know, a coin is circular, but it actually is appearing to you as an oval and you might never have noticed that if you didn't stop to think about perception um, in this way. Uh, there are a couple of other interpretations of Barclay uh, that, that maybe don't have this kind of problem. Um, perhaps the most common interpretation of Barclay is that the ideas are some, or that the um, objects are some kind of collection of ideas. So on this view, there are, as it were, all of the table perceptions of all the perceivers go together into a collection and the table is that collection. So there's a real thing that can be, that kind of is the table. And maybe we can't describe it without using the concept table, but that isn't a problem because it exists quite independent of our conceptualizing activity as a collection of ideas. There are some problems with that view. Um, I perceive only very few of those. And presumably the table would exist if I didn't perceive any of them. And presumably the table exists even if no human is perceiving them. Um, so uh, there is this story according to which, uh, well, the table continues to exist because God perceives it. Uh, this is sometimes called the limerick interpretation because uh, there is a famous limerick attributed to uh, a guy called Ronald Knox in, by Bertrand Russell um, that goes like this. There was a young man who said, God must find it exceedingly odd to see that the tree continues to be when there's no one about in the quad. Uh, and the, the second stanza gives God's response. Young man, your astonishment's odd. I am always about in the quad. And that's why the tree continues to be since perceived by yours faithfully, God. Um, this is not actually a great interpretation of Barclay because it runs into skeptical problems that Barclay's philosophy is designed to avoid. Um, so if the real objects are the ideas in God's mind and our ideas are just copies of them, then once again, we have no knowledge of the real things because they're only in God's mind and we can't read God's mind. And there's this worry about whether our ideas match up with them. Um, so I defend a kind of uh, a pragmatist interpretation of Barclay. I emphasize this stuff about, you know, the real bread, the bread we should call real, is the stuff that's worth caring about for the practical conduct of our lives. And we shouldn't try to figure out the meaning of the word tree. Barclay doesn't believe in meanings, according to my interpretation. What Barclay believes in are um, kind of skills for how to use words in a way that helps us navigate the world for our practical concerns. And so we shouldn't be talking about what is the meaning of the word tree, or even what really is the tree. Uh, we should be thinking instead about how we employ the word tree 
as part of our practice of navigating the world of ideas and navigating our experience in a way that produces useful outcomes for us. Uh, and to come back to where we started, that of course is something that can be done just as well in the matrix or if you're a brain event uh, as it can be done if you're in the world with us. So Kenny, I wanna, I wanna end with a couple of uh, observations. The first is, um, you know, you've talked about this idea of, you know, God being the perceiver of this and that sort of generating some kind of reality. So the philosopher Sam Liebens has this interesting view, which is that it's not that uh, God is imagined by man. It is that rather man is imagined by God and that all of us are a fiction uh, in, in the mind's eye of God. But I also thought, uh, given that we've been doing some, some kind of interesting quoting, I'd end with a quote by the great comedian Bill Hicks. And he says, uh, Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration. There are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. There is no such thing as life or death. Um, life is only a dream and we are the imagination of ourselves. Here is Tom with the weather. Do you worry that you're in a simulation personally? No, no, I don't, I don't worry that I'm in a simulation. Um, I am, uh, I'm pretty confident that uh, no one could have kidnapped me and invaded me you know, this is a worry I should mention with all the things we've previously been talking about. A lot of the responses assume that you've been in the simulation all along, right? But if you once had experience of trees outside the simulation, then that's what your concept would mean. And if you were put in the simulation, you wouldn't be experiencing real trees. I'm reasonably sure that present day technology uh, rules out that uh, scenario. No one could have done that to me. And so the, uh, the world that I am experiencing now, I'm uh, pretty sure is the real world that I have known all my life, and that's good enough for me. Ah, that's what the evil demon wants you to believe. 